This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for July 8th, 2019. Evidence is the most important thing to argue any political proposal, you'd think. But do people only seek out the evidence they want? And when they find evidence, do they see what they want in it? Let's see if we can extract meaning from facts with one politically motivated writer. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast... The average wage for the top percent, 1% has exploded. They have basically trebled in a time when overall wages have been flat as a pancake. Sure. That's yeah, I, incredibly I, yeah. unjust, isn't it? Well, is it unjust? I don't think it's unjust. I think it's a natural – again, we get back to the nat- the globalism thing. Wait, what? Uh, you, you, you were working, you're working twice as hard as somebody was 40 years ago and you're making the same money? We'll have that in a few minutes, but before I go any further, I want to say thanks to all the donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is basically a website that allows people to make a donation of a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. If, when I say tick-tock, your mind goes to a clock, then you're not in the demographic for tick-tock. Tick-tock is a video-sharing app with a very young demographic. It's got something approaching a billion users, and that's not counting the users of a parallel app in China called Douyin, which is basically identical except firewalled off to comply with Chinese censorship laws. To put that in context, Facebook took almost eight years to get to a billion users. TikTok won't be three years old until September. The videos are limited to 15 seconds mostly, and as you might expect, they normally center on music and youth culture. If you want to feel old, download it and swipe through a few videos. Users who get more than a thousand followers unlock a feature that allows them to do live streams to all of those followers and to broadcast live video basically to them. So far, so standard media. But the other aspect of TikTok is the ability to send and receive virtual gifts. Basically, users can send a digital gift to each other. In case you don't know what that is, it just means that a cute little symbol pops up on the user's screen. Obviously, they don't have any value, except when they do. Gifts have cute names like Panda, Rainbow Puke, Sun Cream, and Drama Queen. But to send them, users must pay for them first, and the prices range from a few cents for the Panda to almost $70 for the Drama Queen. Remember that there's nothing of value here apart from the fact that young users seem to be willing to pay to send them. And they're sending them to 
TikTok stars, people with more than a thousand followers, or in some cases with millions of followers. ByteDance, the company that owns TikTok and its Chinese equivalent Douyin, seems to have hit on a formula that encourages young people to hand over their money in return for very insubstantial benefits, like having a star call out their name on a live stream. And it can be very young people, pre-teens, and it can be a lot of money. Some kids have sent hundreds of dollars worth of gifts. There's nothing in the software to check their age or limit how much they send. It seems that half of this money goes to the recipient and half to the owners of TikTok, which has propelled them to a value of $75 billion. I'm not saying all of this to go off on a moral panic or do a Maud Flanders saying somebody think of the children. There are certainly exploitative aspects to this, but the point I'm interested in is, firstly, that these social networks can mushroom from nothing to apparent global domination within a couple of years, and that they can melt away just as fast. Remember Vine? That was the previous video-sharing phenomena. It was bought by Twitter for only, ha, only $30 million six months after it launched. It lasted for four years in total. And remember Keek and Mixbit? Me neither. But they were both, at one stage, the next big video-sharing platforms. And they're gone now too. I think it shows that many areas of the internet are still a wild west. We have some way to go before it takes on the characteristics of a mature business platform. If I were TikTok, I'd take those billions and run. The same probably goes for Facebook and Twitter. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have John Hawkins. He's a writer for BizPack Review. He also runs the BrassPills.com website. He's an author of a book called 101 Things All Young Adults Should Know. And I got in touch with him about an article that he wrote for his own personal website, rightwingnews.com. John, you were reading Tim Carney's book called Alienated America, Why Some Places Thrive While Others Collapse. And you did an article that was basically listing a whole load of facts of statistics that Tim Carney had in his book. What was your takeaway from the whole thing? Well, uh, there are a number of books that go in this vein. Uh, For example, Bowling Alone, Mm -hmm. Coming Apart, The State of White America. Uh, You can can go on with these. But uh, his book in particular I thought was interesting because it not only approached what was going wrong for people on the lower end of the economic spectrum economically, which is where most people go. He talked about one of the big problems that you're seeing for people there is a cultural thing in that they're no longer connected to the culture. So for them, the American dream 
isn't necessarily the old uh, the White House, the picket fence, and the 2.5 kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be part of it. But the other part of it is, hey, they have they have a certain number of friends. They go to church every week. They feel connected to the people in the community around them, and they're no longer seeing that as much. The reason I was really interested in your article is because it's a whole bunch of bullet points. And many of them are facts and they're typically comparing what the US, what cultural life was like, what economic life was like in perhaps the 1960s and 70s and now for that terrible word millennials. What really struck me on that was that I think I could read pretty much the same list of bullet points of facts, of statistics on a left-wing website where they would be decrying economic injustice. And what really struck me was that I think a big part of the divide, particularly in the United States these days, is that people look at the same set of facts and come to an entirely different set of conclusions. First of all, do you think I'm right on that? And secondly, do you think that maybe when you look at those facts, there's a tendency for you to see what you want to see? I think everybody has a tendency to see what they want to see. That's a very humble thing to say. Well, yes, and and to see (laughs) the conclusions that they they you know want to see. And for example, you said economic injustice. I just think more of how the world's changed. Really, I think a lot of the economic issues we've seen over the last fifty to sixty years, for example, are globalism. Mm -hmm. Why is Bill Gates so rich? Because he's selling his product everywhere, not just in the United States. Mm -hmm. Why have we seen a lot of factories move overseas? It's not that Bill Gates or some other rich guy did it. It's that suddenly, because of shipping containers, which came along in the nineteen. 1960s, computers, and then the internet, it's much more affordable to to sell things and move things from all over the world. So I look at changes like that, and and I can see the enormous cultural and economic shifts that have happened, and trying to sort of go back and say, why did these things happen? I think a lot of them are just nature of the beast. I don't think there's necessarily some policy. I just think it's a natural shift that's happened. And then we have to try to figure out how to deal with it, which is not so easy. Okay, that's possibly true. But the word that I would quibble with is natural. And I tend to find that people who like the status quo tend to say, oh, well, it's just natural. You can't really question it. People who want to change things tend to say, no, it can be a different way. It's a bit of a lazy thing to say, it's just natural, isn't it? Well, I guess I would say, if you, if you say, can it be a different way? It can always be a different way. There, you know, It's like Thomas Sowell likes to say, there are no solutions, there are only trade-offs. Mm-hmm. We can always make trade-offs. I mean, one thing that some countries do that we do to a limited extent Uh, For example, we could put massive tariffs on everything coming in from outside the United States, Mm -hmm. and that would keep more jobs here at a cost of dramatically raising the cost of goods. I mean, that's. Uh, Are you sure? Are you sure? I don't think that that's uh, really been established, and countries that have very high tariff rates tend to be very poor countries. That doesn't necessarily mean it's causative, but it doesn't mean it's not. Well, I mean, just to give you an example, the United States itself started out with having a lot of tariffs. That was our that was our taxes. We didn't have an income tax. We used tariffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I'm generally against tariffs. I'm a free trader, but I, I think sometimes it's a good idea to use tariffs to 
enforce free trade to get mm-hmm. better trade agreements. And I think we're better off with free trade. But but, you know, I can I can also see the the other side and why people don't like them. It's always who's you know, goose is getting gored mm-hmm. because, for example, if uh, you're talking about something like uh, steel, I know Bush slapped some tariffs on there to protect the steel industry. We could. Yeah, for example, with steel, put tariffs high enough so it would make sense to have all our steel done here. What, but what, then, what well, percentage? What percentage of the workforce works in steel mills? Well, it's small. Yeah, it's, it's small, almost nothing. I'm isn't using it? that as an example. Yeah, but we could hit that across. There, this argument works for everything. You could put a massive tariff. No, no, no. On no it, it doesn't. It doesn't, John. John, it doesn't work for yeah. everything because most things are very, very highly specialist. And if you put a tariff on it, it doesn't mean that then you protect that industry in your country. It just means that you get less of that. Well, give me an example of that. The example that I'd give you is scanners, where you want to scan a document. You know how many countries in the world make scanners? How many? One, Taiwan. All the scanners well, in the world are made in Taiwan. You are probably right when it comes to scanners, yes. No, but everything is scanners. Bread is made in every country in the world, but pretty much every country in the world has a strong specialism, and it, particularly for high-value items, they are not made in every single country because the degree of education and technology and industrial tradition that you need to make them means that having a small number of centres that make them at a very efficiently, at a very high quality, is a much better way of organising the economy, isn't it? Well, where I would go even with scanners would be that if this is a big enough market for scanners and they're being made in one country, well, guess what? If the tariffs get high enough, they will bring part of their company here and make the scanners. They do that with cars, for example. So I I don't think it's completely out of the line. I, I understand what you're saying, that it does make sense from an economic perspective that certain countries are going to be better at making certain things. So, yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Okay, but I don't really want to go down that route. The route that I want to go down is what I think you were emphasizing in the article, and you came back to a whole bunch of statistics that essentially centered on the fact that people who have a high involvement in society, people who have a lot of friends, people who have strong social networks, people who go to church tend to do an awful lot better in terms of health, um, in terms of lifespan and economically. What do you think is the direction of causation there? Well, I think that if you're talking about the causation of it, I I think you you can sit down and say, well, which one is it, correlation or causation? We Mm -hmm. don't know for sure. But what we can say, it, it just, and this is something I've seen across multiple books, not just Tim Carney's, mm-hmm. that the people who ironically go to church the most, who have the most social connections, they're the people that are doing the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, like just to give you a, a, an odd one, and I, I don't remember if I, this was from Tim Carney's book or another one. I think it was from Tim Carney's. Uh, the people who d- define themselves as very religious and who never go to church – we're one of the most reliable voting blocks for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about the people who actually go to church, they're a much lower number. And those people who actually go to church tend to be wealthier and more successful. Mm-hmm. Now, which one is it correlation or causation? I don't know. I, I do know that we can associate the fact that, hey, going to church, having all these social contacts are people that are more successful. Okay. Can I make a, a suggestion in that case? Sure, because sure, sure. I think, I think, well, 
I think it's obvious because we have the statistics that there's a whole bunch of positive indicators in terms of family stability, in terms of uh, economics, of people having a job and so forth, that are associated with these strong social bonds. Mm -hmm. There are a whole load of people in the United States today who are living from hand to mouth, who are working second jobs who are relying on a lift because they can't afford an automobile or maybe trying to get up early and walk however many blocks to try and get a bus that goes not quite to where they want to do, but they have to walk another number of blocks at the other end. And it's not surprising that there's a strong correlation between economic success and social connections because people who are living a more marginal financial lifestyles they don't have the time for that. I'm not sure that I, I agree with the idea that people who are, are are poor, as a general rule, have a lot less free time than people that are rich. I, I no, mean, I'm, not I mean, all poor, but many of them, the working poor, I would say. Yeah, but the working poor. I mean, I I don't know. For example, that you know, if you go, and I mean, we're we're going to get into comparing apples and oranges here. But like, the guy who's managing a bank has you know a lot more free time than than the guy who's working a, a shift at Wendy's every day. You know what I'm saying? I don't you know, know but the guy who's working a shift some, at Wendy's every day yeah. is probably working another shift somewhere else as well. Maybe. Maybe he's where I mean, there's not when you look at the actual numbers of people in the United States who are working to uh, two jobs percentage wise. It's not a huge percentage. Uh, I want to say it's and I'm doing this off the top of my head. This could be awful, mm-hmm. bit, but it's something like seven or eight mm-hmm. percent. So I don't I mean, there are people who do that. I've done no, but that. Po- before. But being yeah. poor also takes up a lot of your time. If, if you're poor, you, you, you need to, you know, go to this shop and that shop to save a f- few pennies on getting something cheaper. You need to not buy a whole load of convenience things or that are time saving things. Being poor takes a lot of time. Well, it can. I mean, just just to name another one, public utilities uh, or, or public utilities, uh, public transportation. You yeah, know, taking a bus takes you a lot longer than just driving somewhere, or it can often does. So, yeah, I, I think that is some of it. I, I don't necessarily know that that is the the gulf in what's doing it because a lot of things. Uh, just just as an example, one of the biggest ones that we're, where we've seen a huge decline all across the board is church. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a huge you know, social thing. We, and this is like from uh, Bowling Alone, for example, one of the things yeah. they've talked about. This is, is Robert how many Putnam's of these, book. Yeah, yeah. How many of these clubs that we used to have back in the day, the Kiwanis, uh, you know, the Elks, all these clubs like that have sort of gone by the wayside that were they were once very, very popular. Now they they dropped and it's dropped across the board. I don't know if that's just a, a function of time. And, and this gets again to the correlation causation thing mm-hmm. is that is are these people uh, are they doing are they less successful because they're not doing those things or mm-hmm. Are they not doing those things and it's causing them to be less successful? We don't know 100% for sure. Okay. I'm looking at a graph here. And the graph has three things. Uh, Taking 1979 as a base point, it has productivity. That's to say how much the average worker makes, how many, not not their salary, how many things they make, how much it's worth. Mm -hmm. The average overall wages and the average income of the top 1%. Mm-hmm. And 
the productivity in the last 40 years has exploded, has probably doubled. So every worker today is making pretty much double what the average worker made, the the things they do. They're working twice as hard. They've got better technology probably, but they're making twice as much stuff as they did 40 years ago. And wages are flat as a pancake for yes. most people. But the average wage for the top percent, 1% has exploded. It went off the chart. Now their wage, their, their incomes are more volatile. So after the economic crash, their incomes went down, but went straight back up again afterwards. And they have basically trebled in a time when overall wages have been flat as a pancake. Sure. That's incredibly unjust, isn't it? Well, is it unjust? I I don't think it's unjust. I think it's a natural. Again, we get back to the the globalism thing. Wait, what? Uh, You 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 were working. You're working twice as hard as somebody was forty years ago, and you're making the same money. You're you're twice as productive. That doesn't necessarily mean you're. I mean, so for example, twice as productive may mean that instead of going out in a farm in a field and doing something by hand, you're driving a tractor. So I'm I'm guessing there were quite a few tractors around even forty years ago, but probably what what it is in sure. I, I, I'm kidding you, John. What, what it really is, is, for example, the way that a Starbucks or a McDonald's is run now is vastly more efficient and modern management methods mean that they make sure that every single minute that somebody's on the clock there, they're working and they're making money for the company. That productivity is very high. The money they're making for the people who own the company is through the roof and their wages are flat as a pancake. And let me give you one, one, and you you talk about um, the difference between uh, you cite a lot of statistics of the difference between people who are college educated and not college educated mm-hmm. 40 years ago somebody who was going to college and let's say they had 12 weeks holidays in the summer mm-hmm. they could work for 9 of those weeks for minimum wage and they'd be able to pay their tuition for the whole year so they could party for 3 weeks work for 9 weeks and they'd have paid their tuition Somebody now working on minimum wage, trying to pay their tuition, would need to work 90 weeks a year. That is a huge shift against the average Joe. And is it really surprising that life, that society falls apart when people are being pushed that hard? Well, a couple things. Uh, school costs, the costs for universities in particular, have gone up. About as fast as anything, that and medical. That, those yeah, are the yeah. two big things that go up much faster than everything else. Um, well, first of all, let's just go back on real quick on the 1% thing. Keep yeah. in mind, too, that the people, you know, again, it comes back to globalism. If I'm like a McDonald's, well, you know, if you're talking about, let's say, in the 60s, I don't even know if they were overseas then. Now you've got them they all were, over the they world. Were. They're doing well. If they were, it was very limited compared to today. Sure. So, and that's with a lot of things. So that's the money coming in, and why you're seeing these people at the very top who are making staggering amounts of money. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is too, a lot of people in the one percent, they they go in and out of the one percent, or they may hit it for let's say two or three years, and they're never in the one percent again. And there's some of them at the very top, but they don't need a, to be. Well, yeah, they don't need to be necessarily, but I'm, I guess what I'm saying is when we talk You're about You're talking about people who make tens of millions of dollars a year. I guess we're not necess- I guess what I'm saying is just because the guy who's making it this year 
10 years from now, that guy may not be in the 1% anymore. But I'm glad he did great for one year. On the other part of it, when you're talking, I think you can definitely see a trend where the people on the at the top, at the very top, are doing much better. The people who are kind of in the middle, they might be doing a little worse. And then the people who are at the bottom. See, we used to have like a lot of people, and I was talking about this in a, with a podcast interview I was doing with David French recently, mm-hmm. where there were a lot of guys who maybe maybe they weren't the smartest guy in the world and they had a few bad habits, that kind of thing, but they could go out and they would work their butts off doing manual labor 10, 12 hours a day. And those guys, they yeah, but hold on, hold on, do, hold on. That yeah, brought yeah. A, whole load more, a whole load more stuff. You did manual well, labor for nine weeks and you could pay your, your yes. whole year's tuition. And well, you've got, you've got, you've got one, yeah, and one bullet point that I see that you've yeah, pulled yeah. here. It says hyper individualism doesn't work as a way of life. Man is a social animal. And sure, that's true. And conservatives tend to criticize individualism, tend to criticize people who move away from the institutions of society like church or whatever. But if you're working that hard, you don't have much of a choice other than to be an individual. You don't have a lot of time to socialize. Well, the point I was getting to with the David French thing was that those guys, what's what's life for them has really collapsed. The people on the very bottom, yeah, uh, it's collapsed culturally. It's collapsed economically. That, that, that very bottom is quite a big, very bottom. It is a very big bottom, and, and yeah. that's thirty percent of Americans couldn't cope with a four hundred dollar unexpected expense. That is true. There's an awful lot of Americans who don't have anything saved at all. And those guys that we're talking about who maybe went out and worked hard, but yeah, they weren't the smartest. They didn't have a lot of education, but they you know, put in a lot of backbreaking labor. There was a time, let's say, gosh, 60, 70 years ago, where not only could they support themselves, they could support a family. Maybe yeah. they didn't have a lot of money. But they could go out and they could support a wife and a kid, and the, you know the wife was at home, and they, you know they might have been hand to mouth, but they were making it. Today, those people can't do that anymore, and it, it's really a bad situation for them. Uh, I don't know what the solution is for that long term. Uh, short term, you can think of you know, this and that that will help a little bit on the margins. Maybe, and I, I'm not a fan of doing this at the moment, but I could see maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now, well, we might be doing something like what Andrew Yang is suggesting and just giving everyone a kind of a basic minimum income. Yeah, th- uh, this, this is a, a universal yeah. basic income. We might cover it in a future podcast, but it essentially means yeah. not not welfare, but everybody, whether you've got a job or not, you get X amount of money, maybe $1,000, maybe $2,000 a month. That's theorized to be more practical in an economy where you have a huge amount of automation and you just don't need people to work. People can just take that money and have a fairly basic lifestyle and, you know, paint pictures or write novels or do whatever the heck they want. It doesn't necessarily need to be productive. I'm a little bit skeptical about that. Although, I'm definitely uh, skeptical now, but uh, I'm yes, saying the future. Yes, yes. When we're, I think you're talking about we're getting to the bread and circuses stage of the of things. You know, that's what the Romans were doing with bread and circuses. They had these people who had massive amounts of money at the very top, but a lot of people didn't have any land. They didn't have anything, so they gave them the bread and the circuses to keep them quiet. And you still had a lot of disorder, a lot of violence with that. So it's not something we should ever want to get to that point. I mean, that's certainly going to be bad if we get there, but we could get there eventually. Okay. But so my question then for you, John, is, isn't it the case that this huge amount of inequality with a very, very large chunk of people at the bottom, you you know, you say people at the bottom, that's a big bottom. 
has essentially been created by conservative policies. Like? I mean, how is that created? Like, which conservative policy created that? Just, I mean, I'm curious. Number one, mm-hmm. an almost freeze on the minimum the, the minimum wage, particularly the federal minimum wage. It's, it's, it has by no means kept up with inflation. Number two, a mm-hmm. huge shift in the tax burden down mm-hmm. the income scale. Mm-hmm. Those are two things. Well, let's let's hit both of those. Uh, first of all, with the minimum wage, I, I don't agree that the minimum wage has much anything to do with it. I, I think a minimum wage I, – I think we'd be better off with no minimum wage. Reason being, I think all you're doing with a minimum wage is taking one person who wants to work for a wage, an employer who wants to pay it, and saying you guys can't work together. I don't really see that. I mean, if you look percentage-wise, there's not a lot of people working for minimum wage in the United States, and they're generally thought of as starter jobs. Maybe you're okay, working at but McDonald's, it sets a floor. Kind of it sets a floor, John. Mm-hmm. And where there's full employment, sure, the minimum wage has very little economic effect. But where there isn't full employment, the minimum wage sets a floor. And if you if you remove that floor, then the bad employer will be outcompeted by the worse. Well, yeah, but how much how often is that the case? I mean, it's certainly not the case right now in the economy, for example. I mean, right now we've got a very low unemployment rate, so there's certainly not it, it's now a case with a market. Yeah, but there's, there, there's also know? a very low employment rate, as you note in your points that there's a huge chunk, particularly of younger men who aren't even in the employment market. Push up Correct. the minimum wage, you will pull them into the employment market. It has to be the case that at least one, and I think there are multiple reasons, but one of the reasons that there there is because the amount that they can earn is very low. But if you say you will pull them in, I don't know that what you're doing simultaneously is lowering the number of jobs there are. The, that that may be gonna, the case. Yes, I, I agree yeah. that, that that can happen. I don't think it always happens, but I think if you, set, think the minimum, if you set the minimum wage yeah. very high, yes, that, that is possible. But, but I'm saying for example, higher but the minimum for, wage. For, for example, for example the, top margin, the top marginal tax rate under mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan, under Ronald Reagan, the top marginal tax rate never went below 80%. That's, yeah. It's nowhere near that now. And there well, are people who are making tens of millions of dollars who are paying vastly less tax than others and than, than people who are actually lower down the, the uh, income scale who are paying a lower percentage of, of tax because they can avail of tax breaks and, and loopholes and so forth. Well, that was your point too. And I, I didn't want to cover that. But no, point, all that. The yeah. effect of that, that means that those taxes have to either uh, have to be collected somewhere else and they're collected either as sales taxes or other types of taxes or as income tax lower down the income scale well i'd say two things about that and i this i don't know this one completely off the top of my head i'm sorry but one thing is the tax rates at one point i believe were 90 yeah. percent for people up there they didn't actually pay 80 and 90%. They paid they had their own little deductions and ways they got to cut that out and protect their income. They paid effectively a much much lower rate. And two, uh, 
just I know this is a thing that we hear all the time that, well, you know, everybody's this, you know, the people who are wealthy aren't paying their fair share. America has an extremely progressive tax, you know, income tax, uh, you know, extremely progressive. The people at the bottom, I mean, just just to give you an example, when I was visiting, uh, you know, England and uh, France, I Mm -hmm. guess that was a couple of years ago. The, like the middle class there are paying a much higher tax rate than they do in the United States. If you add in uh, free university and free health care and count that as, as a cost that you're paying with your taxation, it, it starts to look like a bargain. I don't I, – you know, that's – again, we're getting to something I haven't studied. I can't give you all that back I, and I, forth. I can't. Can, let, let me yeah. give you this one, John. Let me give you this sure, one. Sure, sure, sure. In the UK, you pay for the – Healthcare system through your taxation, through your the tax you pay on your on your uh, wages and through sales tax called VAT. There, mm-hmm. the amount of the economy, the amount of the total uh, GDP that is paid through taxes for the healthcare system in the UK is less than the percent of the GDP that Americans pay through their taxes for healthcare. But the difference is that amount in the UK gives everybody universal health care. In the US, people A, have to pay for insurance on top of that, which is pretty much double of the cost, and B, it's not universal either. Yeah, it's not universal, and the health care costs here definitely are higher than they are in Great Britain. I don't know that making everything like, I guess the way we'd end up doing it here if we did it would be Medicare for all. I don't mm-hmm. think ultimately that would end up reducing our costs a lot. I, you know, again, we're getting into a whole separate area. I mean, we could do a whole show on health care and we, how we, that would we, play sure, out. we sure could. We sure could. We sure could. Yeah. But I'm just looking here at mm-hmm. one of the, and I've highlighted one of the things that you've written. It says, men enjoy a marriage premium of at least $15,900 per year in individual income compared to their single peers. That's to say yes. married men earn more. Yes. And the clear implication of that from your article, at least, is get married and you will be a more stable person and you'll have, you know, maybe be recognized better in your job and you'll earn more money. But the bottom line is you can't afford to get married if you are in a hand-to-mouth job. You certainly can't afford to start a family. Well, there's some truth to that. And one of the things we're seeing in the United States, or I guess it's all over the Western world, but I know here for sure, is like the age of marriage has gone up. Uh, Used to be, I want to say, 21 for women, 22 for men. Mm -hmm. Now it's 29 for men, 27 for women. A much smaller percentage of the population is getting married. And I think there's a lot of things that go into that, including the fact that, you know, there's there's a lot of expectations with marriage. Some of of it is, for example, that if you're a woman, you're going to marry a guy that makes more than you. And if you're not making anything, you're not going to be doing it. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. yeah. And I, I and again, you like we mentioned earlier, that guy who's you know maybe working manual labor, he can't afford to take care of a wife anymore. But but he could when his productivity was half of what it was 40 years ago. Yeah, but a lot of things have changed since then. I mean, a yeah, lot you know of what's the... changed? You know what's changed? Productivity what? has doubled, and the people, the bottom tier in the U.S., just ha- are the people who have 
improve their productivity. It's not. Have they? I mean, do we know? Sure, absolutely. See, I don't believe that. Really. No, hold on for a second. The big productivity gains have been at the lower end of the scale. So, for example, a mom and pop cafe forty years ago replaced by a Starbucks now. You seriously telling me the Starbucks isn't vastly more efficient? I think it's vastly more efficient. I don't know if that's where the productivity gains in the economy are mostly coming from. I would say those are things like, for example, uh, selling software, where you have a team of software engineers that go out and produce something that that you know can get. No, wait, what? Wait, get, what? Wait, what? Yeah, wait, what? Yeah. What about all the blue collar jobs? Factory jobs have been. There's been a huge amount of automation brought in. There's been a huge amount of true, uh, true. D- uh, management changes that keep people on the job and keep people's attention focused on that. If you look at the way, for example, call center workers work, and the call center workers have essentially replaced maybe people who would be bank tellers 40 years ago. If you're working in a call center now, literally every single second that you spend on the clock can be analyzed by your supervisor. And if you have too many seconds of downtime between the co- between calls, then you'll be called in and uh, told what's what. That's a hu- that causes a huge increase in productivity over, let's say, a bank teller forty years ago. I- I'd agree, and a couple of things though with that. Uh, the first, when you're talking about manufacturing, manufacturing is a place we've seen a massive increase in productivity. But what's happened, the way we've done that is. Uh, so let's just take an example. Let's say in the 50s, uh, if you're trying to get unload packages off a ship, you'd have all these guys coming in and personally unloading it and moving it and, and you know, using a little bit of equipment. Yeah. Now they use shipping shipping containers mm-hmm. and you have one guy on a crane. Is he much more productive than that whole team of guys moving it? Absolutely. Or you've got some guy with equipment who's doing something that it took 20 people to do a long time ago. So like manufacturing, a lot of people think it's died off in the United States. It's really not true. Manufacturing productivity has gone up and up, but we're having much fewer workers to do it. Uh, As to the call center job, I think that illustrates part of the problem we're having and why you're not seeing wages go up. And I can tell you, me personally, before I started writing for a living and running a website for a living, I worked in a call center. I worked doing technical support. Mm-hmm. And that was something I did. So in 2005, when I went full time, basically they brought us all in and say, hey, we've got some good news and bad news for you. The good news is we could have fired all of you and sent your jobs to India. The bad news is we're going to cut your you know, we're gonna cut your costs, which you're getting paid way down. Mm-hmm. So and I left. Some people didn't. But that's a thing right now. You can literally, because of globalization, take those call center jobs and a lot of them have and farm them out to someone in India who will do the same exact job as an American, and they'll do it for $3 an hour. And, and so you're seeing a lot of jobs like that that used to be here that used to you know, pay the wages for people that are going overseas to cheaper markets. And that is really – that's where you're seeing a lot of the people on the bottom are getting killed because their jobs are just leaving. They're going somewhere else. What do you think of the people who say it's the Bernie Saunders and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who are standing up for those people at the bottom? Are they, though? I mean, I, I look at you know Venezuela where they're eating zoo animals, and I don't necessarily think socialism 
makes anything better. I think what socialism does. Oh, come on. Does, oh, come on. No, no, no. Come on. That's, that's a fallacy. That's, what that's I a think, fallacy of extremes. I know. We won't agree to, we'll have to agree to disagree on socialism. Again, whole other show. But I, I guess what I would say is that the more socialistic things get, all you do is you replace merit with political connections for who's on top. So the people who, who know the right people, they make all the money. And then the people who are, you know, who are out there earning it and merit it, they don't – the people who are at the bottom stay at the bottom, whether it's socialism or capitalism. It, it's not that you're going to do so much better if, if – no, social- no, but that's, that's, that's specifically not true. There are some societies that have much more social mobility than others. I, America has a lot of social mobility. And I again, depends on whose stats you believe. We have a lot of social mobility in America. I think there are certain areas where it is a lot harder. It's certainly a lot easier if you're already connected to the right people and know them and like your dad can get you into Harvard. You're going to move up a lot faster than someone who doesn't have that hook. So, yeah, I I would agree on, on at least on that part. John Hawkins, writer with BizPack Review and editor of RightWingNews.com. Thanks very much for talking to me. It has been great. Anytime you need me on, bring me on. Love it. Love talking to you. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please follow the show on Facebook, follow at Challenging O on Twitter, and follow John Hawkins at John Hawkins RWN. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or topic for a future show. Also, thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate that. It means I can devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, you'll find the link on the website. You can also find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's July 15th, I'll be talking to Raymond Ibrahim, the author of Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.